0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, T.D. Allman, author of the new book, Finding Florida, the True History of the Sunshine State.
1: So you have this constant reinvention. Things are simpler for me because I stick to the facts.
0: We'll remember the Vero Beach Drive-In Theater in the 1950s and join the search for the runaway slave town of Angola.
1: To enable their
2: families to escape with their lives, 400 black warriors fought off Jackson's entire army for a day.
0: All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. T.D. is author of the books Miami, City of the Future, and Rogue State, America at War with the World. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, Vanity Fair, National Geographic, Esquire, Harper's, and Rolling Stone. T.D. Allman's latest book is called Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State. Although he now has homes in New York and the south of France, as well as Miami, T.D. Allman is a native Floridian.
1: Yeah, I was born in Florida. I was born in Tampa. And uh, mother shot an alligator under the backyard one day. The house is on the uh, Hillsborough River. And uh, actually, I drove past there the other day, and I knocked on the door. And a, uh, a black man in his late 30s answered the door. And he said, oh, you must be the writer who lives in New York. And I gave them a copy of my book and I pointed to the bedroom where I'd slept as a child and because it was walking home from grade school in second grade at age seven after being forced to read Dick Jane, See Jane Run and all that stuff, I thought I can write better books than that and I have as a matter of fact and one is in front of us and so I gave them the book and I inscribed it to the fine folks who live in the house where I decided to become a writer age seven.
0: By subtitling his book, The True History of the Sunshine State, T.D. Allman indicates his belief that at least some of Florida's previous history is
1: false. I'd like to say two things about that. First of all, much worthwhile research has been done by individual scholars in Florida. There's a long list uh, Eugene Lyons' splendid work on the actual Spanish foundation, never quoted, A great 19th century historian, John Titcomb Sprague, who was the Thucydides of the Seminole Wars, never cited in conventional histories. Uh, But the history we know, the general history, is fictional. It was made up. It is basically neo-confederate and racist in fundamental construction and false in everything it says up to and including the present.
0: At the top of T.D. Allman's long list of false Florida history is what he calls the mythology of Ponce de Leon. This year, people throughout Florida are commemorating the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state by Ponce de Leon and his discovery of the Gulf Stream, which would make future colonization and the establishment of trade routes possible. We are also recognizing that his contact with Florida's indigenous population would lead to the destruction of complex societies that had existed here for thousands of years. T.D. Allman dismisses the importance of Ponce de Leon entirely.
1: And they never named anything after Ponce de Leon. The Spaniards were here for 250 years. The Americans were here for quite a while, uh, and they never named anything after after Ponce de Leon, Washington Irving in the early 19th century made up the Ponce myth as as it was later purveyed. And then when rich men started coming down here, notably Flagler, he wanted a nice name for his hotel and he sort of remembered Ponce de Leon and he named it. And that decided it. I mean, this is a very Floridian American thing. Ponce de Leon today is a figure in American history because a rich man decided to name a hotel after him. And then later on, a fellow named Walter P. Fraser came down from Georgia, uh, and he was the one who uh, made up the Fountain of Youth, and he was able to buy up some land at uh, Depression-era prices, and he was a genius of a showman. And if we had time, I could document it. Up to about 1927, there are almost no mentions of Ponce and and virtually no mentions of the Fountain of Youth.
0: Some Florida historians are calling Finding Florida, the true history of the Sunshine State, refreshingly honest. Others say that author T.D. Allman is sometimes creating controversy where none exists. For example, historians do not claim that Ponce de Leon established St. Augustine, yet Almond rightly defends Pedro Menendez de Aviles as the founder of that city in 1565. That said, not only does Almond find Ponce de Leon unworthy of recognition, he believes that St. Augustine should not be preparing to celebrate their 450th anniversary in 2015.
1: Their phrase is the oldest continuously inhabited city. now. If you go there and you ask, there's not one building there that ate, that dates back before about 1820, okay? The the city was emptied out many times. Uh, it would like the, – the equivalent – what Ponce de Leon – I was thinking about this the other day. He's more like Sir Walter Raleigh. You remember those stories where Raleigh landed on the Virginia coast? and But it was really only later when the people in Jamestown came in and bringing slaves with them. That, um, that Virginia and America's history really began. So what you really have here, if you take these two parallel events, I think we really have to compare Menendez and his slaughter of the French. Let me just explain here what had happened. Uh, they had many difficult and failed expeditions, the Spanish didn't, until finally the King of Spain banned further settlement here. He said Florida's soil was too sandy or harbors too shallow to admit a practicable settlement, that was until they found out the French had made a settlement near Jacksonville, and it was like the uh, Bay of Pigs in reverse. Menendez tore across the Atlantic, he slaughtered the French, hundreds of them, more than a hundred of them, and as I say in my book, it was this first mass slaughter of white men by white men that really started our history. Just as it wasn't Raleigh and the Pocahontas myth, but the arrival of serious slavery in Jamestown uh, that marked the beginning further north and, and so on. So I think we need to look at the realities. Today we face great problems in the United States and, and in Florida. Uh, let me put it this way. If you start with the Pont Smith and you go forward through the Confederate sh- uh, Chevalier and the visionary and so on, everything in Florida comes as a surprise. My God, this is supposed to be warm here. Yesterday, I nearly froze to death. You know, oh, there comes a hurricane. You know, all this stuff. If you look at Florida as it really has been, which is a a very interesting history of struggle, of violence, of good people, of bad people, it's a much better. I tell – let me tell you one thing. If you read my book, Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State, you will have a much more interesting story than anything you ever learned in uh, school now the other thing is if you look at history as it actually happened then you can understand things why do we have invasive species well we are an invasive species because of florida's subtropical location and you go through all these things and what i found fascinating is what normally seems sort of silly in florida history like the Ponce de Leon myth. Once you dig underneath, very fascinating things are happening.
0: Some Florida historians are saying that T.D. Allman's frank, critical analysis of Florida's Civil War and Reconstruction era, and the historians who wrote about them, is long overdue. Others believe that Allman is unnecessarily harsh in his critique and say that his commentary sometimes descends into gratuitous name-calling. For example, Carolyn Mays Brevard wrote an early history of Florida following the Civil War. She writes from a particular Southern perspective, to be sure, but Alman labels her a white supremacist. He is very critical of Florida historians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and unapologetic about his descriptions of them.
1: Harsh, these are value judgments. I tell what really happened, and I, I have a chapter in my book called Florida's Fake History. I'll repeat, Florida's Fake History. And I give the great Bah Florida historians their due, but, you know, it's not just the the publicists, the propagandists, the people who really have tenure from the Chamber of Commerce. Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., the revered icon of the Northeastern elite Ivy League establishment, his book on Jackson is twaddle when it comes to Florida. Because Andrew Jackson, as we all understand, played a very important role here. Most, I could explain what that role is if we had enough time. But since Jackson's excesses here, to put it mildly, do not fit into Schlesinger's schema that Jackson was really a rather innocent frontiersman when he became president, he simply leaves out Florida. And Jackson's, and one of the things you may remember from high school or grade school is how Jackson came down here and hung two Englishmen. What we don't learn is that was part of one of the first great constitutional crises in the United States in which, pitting Jackson against Monroe. And Schlesinger just leaves this out. So at every, I don't know why so many historians go along with it. The one historian, uh, one, let me talk about, and I will say is Florida's greatest living historian. He's a man named Cantor Brown. He never got tenure. He's not head of any Florida history department. He teaches in Georgia. And he was he's done wonderful work on Ossian Hart. If you've never heard of him, go find out who Ossian Hart is. And he was writing basically the kind of stuff I am writing 20 years ago. And he went to the one of the old professors who was going to get him tenure somewhere, and he said... Now, young man, you don't want the Florida tail wagging the southern dog. And that's how you are expected to fit in. And when I write, and when I write books, I don't care whether I fit in. What I care is whether I get the truth. And so did Cantor Brown, and there are a number of other very good historians as well.
0: Florida's modern tourism industry and aggressive land development really began in the late 1800s. Harriet Beecher Stowe was one of the early proponents of Florida as a paradise for both visitors and new residents. T.D. Allman believes that the efforts to develop tourism and sell real estate has led to more Florida myth-making.
1: Yes, I mean, the hurricane arrives on scene in the very first incident of, of recorded Florida, uh, of important Florida history, this massacre of the French uh, that I mentioned, but uh, you'd think Harriet Beecher Stowe, the great abolitionist, lincoln said oh so this is the little woman who tore a country apart or something to that effect she came down and she had a place on the saint john's river which is not a river in jacksonville go to your geology books or my book to find out what it really is and she became a great propagandist for florida and when one of her guests dared to suggest that it got cold in florida and that they had disease here she was really quite irritated And she said, really, this doctor, one might think he was a hypochondriac. And then she added, besides, the malaria in Florida is of the milder sort. Sidney Lanier, a Georgia poet who fought for slavery during the war, uh, you know, even then, journalists were very cheap to buy. You gave you a free railroad ticket, and they'd come down and write books. Poor man, he came down. He said Florida was a great place to cure yourself of tuberculosis. And then he went back to Georgia and died of tuberculosis. Harriet Beecher Stowe said, is it Florida's fault that invalids imprudently come here and die? So I, I describe, I say the hype is like, it's as though there's some elixir of falsehood in the water. You drink of it and, you know, slavery people, abolitionists, they all become, oh, come on down. Now, the problem is we, even in Florida, We have to live with the consequences of our actions. And there is one thing I will tell you about Florida that holds true from the very beginning to the present. There has not one, never in Florida do things turn out as you expect them to turn out.
0: In his book, Finding Florida The True History of the Sunshine State, T.D. Allman takes the reader from prehistory to the present he says that for more than a century and a half florida has been falsely mythologized as a paradise and that historians have been complicit in the misrepresentation
1: from uh, probably the 1850s till really very recently uh, is a is a fake florida history a fake narrative which of a constantly reimagined Florida that never existed. You see, although they make up a mythological Florida, that Florida is constantly changing because it's the duty of this mythic Florida to correspond to what people often who have no interest in the facts and no interest in knowing wish it to have been. So if you went back, say, 60 years to like, or let's say go back to before World War II, or even quite recently, you would have people who would call uh, history books published in the 50s describe slavery as as the greatest institution for civilizing African savages that had ever been developed. You had chapters in res- supposedly respectable history books called uh, The War of Southern Independence, if not the War of Northern Aggression. Now, Those also painted Florida as this ideal place, which had always been right pleasant. But, of course, then it was the darkies and the slaves. And now today, if you go to the same kind of people, they're saying, of course, slavery was evil. But, of course, it was always very nice. So you have this constant reinvention. Things are simpler for me because I stick to the facts.
0: T.D. Allman is author of the controversial new book, Finding Florida, the True History of the Sunshine State. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brotmarkel. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. We maintain an extensive archive at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, manage the historic Rossiter House Museum in O'Galley, host the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region, and operate the Florida Historical Society Press. Although we are the Statewide Historical Society, we are not financially supported by the state. We depend on support from people like you. Please visit our website at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button to find out about supporting our educational outreach efforts throughout the state. That's myfloridahistory.org.
3: I at the drive-in movie.
0: The Vero it's Beach Drive-In in Theater was a cool hangout spot in the 1950s Janie Gould talks with manager Jack Chestnut.
4: The drive-in theater was a post-war icon. Parents could pack up their baby boomer kids, and everyone enjoyed an evening of inexpensive entertainment. Jack Chestnut opened the Vero drive-in in 1950.
5: Admission then was 44 cents, children under 12 free, and of that 44 cents, the theater only got 37 cents because there was still excise tax from World War II, 20%. What were the prices of the food? Well, It was terrible. Hot dogs were... $0.15. Cents. And the drinks were, uh, I think the regular size was $0.10 cent and the large was 15 We did have lots of of mosquitoes. I got DDT spray from the mosquito control. They would give it to us. We had five gallon drums on the back of the truck and it went through the exhaust. We sprayed for mosquitoes and that really made a difference.
4: You were telling me about a promotion you did around Easter.
5: This was probably the second year we were open. Easter and I came up with the idea of uh, talk to Law's feed and supply company. They agreed to give us 3,000 baby chicks to give away. Now actually we didn't give them away. We gave a certificate. But anyhow we advertised 3,000 baby chicks to be given away on that easter sunday and would you believe the car is lined up from the driving theater all the way into town some people even brought containers to put chickens in but we gave them a certificate to go to law is to pick up 15 chicks. US-1, I mean, it was totally bogged up. They had the police down there trying to direct traffic and everything, and we filled up and still had cars, couldn't get in.
4: Lots of chicken dinners, too, over the next
5: few months. I guess so. Different lifestyle from what we have now.
4: You did this on Easter Sunday in conjunction with the movie that was playing?
5: I don't remember the name of the movie that day, but it was just a promotion. The chicks kind of go with Easter, new birth.
4: I guess a lot of people in town must have had chicken coops.
5: Well, actually, when I moved to Real Beach in 1933, uh, we lived in a house right over across from where the city hall is. We had our own chicken yard, and we had chicken every Sunday. And I was the one that had to kill the chicken and pick it, but mother took it after that.
4: So that type of thing, I guess, was still going on, especially when practically everybody in town got 15 baby chicks.
5: You can't even raise chickens in the city limits of Rural Beach now. It has changed.
4: You were showing me a picture of a teepee that you had outside the drive-in. Chief Crazy Haas, H-O-S-S. What was that all about?
5: Universal Film Company came out with a drive-in theater week. They offered prizes for the best exploded of their movies. And the one that I chose to do was Chief Crazy Horse. Jeff Morris had a Model Ford, and we built a TP on it. They drove it all over around town. And I submitted that. And we won the best exploited picture in the United States that week. And I was awarded all of $250.
4: It helped drum up business really well?
5: Well, in the theater business, that's called exploitation. I don't think the theaters do much of that anymore, but we used to do it a lot. You're always trying to come up with something different and uh, gimmicks. I remember one time at the uh, Florida Theater, we put a house on the back of a truck and drove around town advertising a movie. Can't even remember the name of that one.
4: Chestnut also managed the indoor Florida theater. At the drive-in, Teen sometimes slipped in by hiding in the trunk of a car.
5: Pretty soon after we had, we had Ramp Boys, after the show had started, one of them went and leaned up against the post just watching the movie. The car he was next to had a couple of kids in the trunk and they couldn't get out and they were in there for about an hour. Maybe they learned a lesson.
4: I was going to get to that and ask you if you ever checked trunks when people were coming in.
5: No, we did not. Some of the kids came in from behind. We know that. We didn't worry about it. They would buy stuff at the snack bar.
4: As long as they did that, it was okay.
5: That's right.
4: The screen tower at the drive-in was built in triangular design to withstand hurricane winds.
5: And it did, but it didn't uh, withstand the wrecking bar later.
4: The Vero Drive-In, which was near the present site of Outback Steakhouse, was closed in 1980. The Florida Theater was closed a few years later. Jack Chestnut has been selling real estate for about 50 years.
0: Cheney Gould prepared that report.
3: When there's one minute to go, till the
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. For centuries, Florida was a relatively safe haven for runaway slaves. In the 1700s and 1800s, escaped slaves joined the Seminoles in Florida and formed their own communities. Bill Dudley talks with scholars who have been investigating one such historic town.
5: What we're doing here today is what we call standard shovel testing.
0: In a backyard near Bradenton,
6: archaeologist Bill Berger and a group of students are making shovel tests, small preliminary holes to determine the presence of buried artifacts.
2: We're going to be testing these parcels um, by digging test holes every five meters. Which is a little bit
6: Berger is directing the fieldwork to find the location of the town of Angola, a colony of escaped African slaves that dates back to what one scholar has called the Other War of 1812, fought by Seminoles and their black allies against American incursions into what was then Spanish Florida. Historians believe some of the black fighters settled here near the Manatee River in 1812. Three years later, they were joined by others who had fought alongside the British at the Battle of New Orleans. The Americans, now led by President to be Andrew Jackson, invaded Spanish Florida again in 1818, at one point, a group of blacks and Creek Indians were on the run from Jackson's army, according to Florida a and historian, Cantor Brown.
2: The Creek Indians escaped across the Suwannee River as Jackson was chasing them, but the blacks were trapped on the west side of the Suwannee River, at what's now Old Town. To enable their families to escape with their lives, 400 black warriors fought off Jackson's entire army for a day, and then escaped themselves. Most of them, we believe, then came to Angola, as a result of which, by early 1819, we estimate that probably somewhere around 700 or 750 individuals lived in Angola. If so, that made Angola one of the largest towns in Florida.
6: But Jackson apparently never got over his anger at the blacks' successful defiance. A few months before Florida officially became a United States territory in 1821, a detachment led by one of his generals came south to destroy the now-thriving settlement.
2: They got here in late May or early June of 1821, somehow overwhelmed the defenses at Angola, seized somewhere around 250 men, women, and children and took them back into slavery. On the way back to the United States, almost all of them, quote, disappeared.
6: But several hundred other people had survived the attack, and now they began a long journey to safety, first by canoe down and around the coast to Cape Florida, present-day Key Biscayne.
7: And from there, it's estimated 150 to 200 of them sailed to the Bahamas, either in ships that were piloted by privateers or in canoes, large dugout canoes with sails.
6: Rosalind Howard is assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Central Florida. She's author of the book, Black Seminoles in the Bahamas.
7: And so they managed to get to Andros Island, which is the largest island in the Bahamas, and it's about 150 miles from Cape Florida. They landed in a spot on the island that was uninhabited, and still, that's the only community on that side of the island today. It's muddy coastline, shallow water, which they chose strategically because they didn't want the ships to come in and and take them back to Florida and re-enslave them.
6: Howard has collected oral histories among the people of the Red Bay's community on the island of Andros, the direct descendants of the Angola settlers. Unfortunately, their stories extend back only to their long trek over water, falling short of their Gulf Coast sojourn. Near the spot where the archaeologists are digging, a historic marker commemorates not the Angolans' daring flight to freedom, but the building of the Braden Sugar Plantation decades later.
2: I don't believe that marker, unless it's changed, credits the slaves with actually building that plantation. But it helps us understand why, why the memory of Angola had to be wiped out. When you build an economy down in this area, or in Florida generally, or in the south, and it's based upon the uncompensated labor of thousands of slaves, you simply cannot tolerate history preserving the memory of men and women and probably even children who were willing to fight and die to keep their freedom much of uh, history is not written down.
6: Rosalind Howard and Cantor Brown are part of the team of the Looking for Angola Project, a collaborative effort to uncover and publicize a part of the hidden history of blacks in Florida's past.
7: There's something that scholars call structural amnesia, and it's a disease that afflicts history. And it really means that What is important to those who are writing history and what is not important to them? What's not important to them gets left out. And that's how much of the history of these freedom seekers has failed to make it into the history books. And it is political. And it does have to do with race, although we as anthropologists know it's not a biological reality, it's socially very real. One of the ways that we can change that is the people have to speak up and say that they want it changed.
6: I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of
0: Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, please visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Markle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.